The master plan. This is a theme that your church are going through at the minute, the master plan. And anything that's a master plan starts with something new. It starts with a new beginning, a fresh beginning and a fresh start. I'm going to share with you some of my journey, the journey that God brought me through, the journey that God is still taking me on now. Because I'm one of these people that maybe is wired a little bit differently. See, I don't just believe God can, I believe God will. It's a subtle but very important difference. So I don't just believe God can heal you, I believe God will heal you. I don't just believe God can save you, I believe God will save you. And that's what we're going to see in this place today. I'm a big believer. I literally take word for word what Jesus said and I accept it, however hard it may be for me to swallow. And the word of God tells me that following the preaching of his word, there will be signs, wonders and miracles. And that's what we're going to see. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Do you believe it? Yes. Try again. Do you believe it? Yes. You, always get, you get two types of responses. You either get Canadian or American. Woo! Go for the American. And you'll never hear me say that in any other context. <laughs> Romans 5, well, it's all right. Whenever I go to the States, I just flip it round and I, and I do it on the Canadians. If you go to Canada, you flip it round and do it on the Americans. It works either way. They don't like each other. <laughs> According to David Cameron, I'm a Yorkshireman and we don't like anyone including each other. That's right. <laughs> Romans 5, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. Because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into his place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. Let that wash over you for a second. God has called us into the same place of privilege as his son, Jesus Christ. Let that wash over you for a second. It's mind-blowing. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Sharing God's glory. Lots of people think that although Jesus was God on earth, that somehow we got a revelation of God's glory by looking at Jesus. We didn't. You see, Jesus had to hide the Father's glory from us in his humanity because our eyes cannot look upon the glory of God and survive. We just can't do it. What Jesus was when he was here on earth was the perfect example of humanity. He's what Adam was before the fall. And lots of people think that that was the beginning when Adam and Eve fell, when Adam and Eve sinned. That was the beginning of all the new things going wrong. It happened way before then. Because there was another guy, we know him as Satan, Lucifer, the archangel, who he decided he wanted to dethrone God and put himself on the throne. And then he convinced man and woman to do exactly the same, to take God off the throne of their lives and put themselves on it. 
And we've been doing it ever since. And if you think you haven't, ask yourself this question, especially those of you that have kids. Have you ever had to teach your kids how to be naughty? No. It just comes naturally, doesn't it? They come out predispositioned to do whatever is the wrong thing, they will do it. We have to teach them to be good. Because we, that's where the way we're wired because we are living in a fallen world. We want to take God off the throne of our lives and put us on it. Even people who've been in church for years still do it. Because on a Sunday, they're quite happy to have Jesus on the throne of their lives and put on your Sunday suit and your Sunday face and look all really nice. But when it comes to your finances, you remove Jesus from the throne and you put yourself back on. When it comes to your thought life, you take Jesus off the throne and you put yourself back on. When it comes to your marriage, to your careers, anything that actually involves your day-to-day -day life, you take Jesus off the throne and you put yourself back on. You see, everybody wants a saviour, but not everybody wants a Lord. Not everybody wants to submit to who Jesus is. And that's where I was. That was my life. I grew up, I believed in God, didn't have an issue believing in God. About the age of 11, I discovered drink, loved it. Smoking, loved it. Discovered cannabis, loved it even more. Then I figured out that if I got people to sell drugs for me, I got my drugs for free and I got money on top of it as well. And whatever drug we were taking, that's the drug we were selling. And this was the days of the early rave scene. Who's going to fess up to being in their late 30s, early 40s and did the whole working men's jacket, white gloves, whistle, posse, blow? Oh, yeah, yeah, you were all there, yeah. The old two-step shuffle. <laughs> so ecstasy, amphetamine, cocaine, LSD, these were the drugs of choice. These were the drugs we were shifted. Then somebody came up with this genius idea, because when you were on a three, four, five day stimulant bender, the come down was horrific. Your, your mouth felt like a floor of a taxi on a Monday morning. It was horrible. Couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. So somebody said, well, if you do a few lines of heroin, levels you right off. Brilliant. A few lines of heroin. It worked. Problem is, it stopped being just a post-weekend thing and turned into a twice-week thing, three-times-week thing. Before you know it, it's the thing. And at the height of my habit, I was injecting about an eighth a day, a couple of hundred quids worth a day, plus 80 millimethadone on top of that. 20 millimethadone would probably OD most people in here. So my life was out of control. But money wasn't an issue because we had lots of people selling it for us. We had lots of money coming in. We were bringing in bigger shipments through Hull Docks. We were getting more and more involved in the crazy violent side of life. I went to do a meet once up near Hull Docks. I wasn't supposed to do it. One of my associates got arrested on an assault charge, so I had to take his car to go and do the meet. Took his car, saw the guy I was supposed to be meeting up, pulled up, wound the window down. You remember when they used to do that? To wind them down, yeah. <laughs> wound the window down. <laughs> what, what was wrong with that? It wasn't that much hard work. Why do we need a button? What's wrong with that? Anyway, I start talking with this guy, and I hear... If anybody's ever heard gunfire, you know what it sounds like. It was a 9mm crack of gunfire. And the headrest on my driver's seat exploded and the back window went through. So the bullet had passed between the two of our heads, hit the headrest and gone through the back window. An inch that way, it would have killed me. An inch that way, it would have killed him. I had a gun in the car, 
but forget what you see on TV. There was no Hawaii Five O going on. All I did was film my shots, put it in first, and I was gone. I didn't know whether they're shooting at me, shooting at him, shooting because I thought I was my mate. I had no idea. I didn't even know where it had come from. Life was out of control. I'd overdosed half a dozen times. I'd been stabbed, been shot at. Things were a mess. So when somebody came to me and said, look, we're planning this robbery. Do you want in? I looked at the job. It was an in-out. They needed a driver. I said, yeah, fine. A few minutes work for a lot of money. I use the word work loosely, but you know what I mean. And this was the days before the police central database systems that they have now. So what we used to do is we cross the border from West Yorkshire into South Yorkshire, steal the car in South Yorkshire and bring it back across. Because it would take South Yorkshire police at least a week to even tell West Yorkshire police that there might be a Nick car in the area. And this will give my age away a little bit. Who remembers the Vauxhall Carlton GSI 3000? Remember that? Oh, it's a lovely car. So if you were living in South Yorkshire around 1997, I'm sorry, but it was a lovely car. <laughs> so we went and got the car, stole it, stashed it, did the job, job went off without a hitch, got away scot-free or so we thought. And we'd agreed to have no contact for a couple of weeks so the police couldn't patch us up together. But because of that we didn't know that one of the lads on the job who was also an addict, he got arrested on a sec section 18, a completely separate charge. But he started rattling detoxing the cells and he ended up turning Queen's evidence against the rest of us. But the first I knew of it was when someone who's selling drugs for me comes banging out of breath at my door. You've got to get on your toes. They're all at the top of your road. I was like, who do you mean? I thought he meant another gang was coming down. We we're going to have a bit of a kickoff. Something was going to happen. He said, no, nah, they're all at the top of your road. Black Mariah, armed response, dog units, they're all at the top of your road. I thought, oh, great. Now, the reason I didn't want to run wasn't because of the armed response. Those boys don't shoot you for no reason. It was the police dogs. Them dogs have an habit of chewing on things ought not be chewed on. So I thought, if I can make it down the bottom of the flats, around the back of the flats, I get round to my mate Joe's on the end, I'll lay low in his, wait till it blows over, because I knew Joe was an amphetamine addict, and I knew he'd just been on a big bender, so I thought he'd be all paranoid in his flat, he'll be in. So I'll make it down the back, get to his, the one time I needed him to be in, and it was signing on day, he's going to get his gyro. So I panicked, and I kicked his door in. If there's any posh people, that's uh, benefits. Um, I went... Uh, <laughs> Not everybody knows what a gyro is, I've never had one. <laughs> so I panicked and kicked his door in, but I smashed the Yale lock as the door went through, so it was obvious it had been kicked in, but I shut it back as best I could, and I'm watching through the gap in the curtains, and I saw the police go up to mine, heard the commotion as my door went through, saw them marching out the people who were left in my flat, I thought they won't say anything, it's good this, it'll blow over in a minute, then I can get on the run. And as I'm watching this unfold, another load of police officers came out of the flats opposite, I thought that's weird. I later found out what had happened was the robbery squad had come to arrest me. I hadn't even bothered to tell the drug squad who'd been watching me for six weeks that they were coming. So the robbery squad boys are saying, well, we come for him, but he's not here. And the drug squad boys are saying, well, he's here somewhere because we saw him come in, but he's not come out. So they start going door to door. And what do they find when they get round to Joe's? Door that's been kicked in. So they push the door open. Hello, police, anybody in? So I came up with this genius plan. I'll pretend to be Joe. So, as they come in, I, I jump up acting all style and surprised like I've been asleep on the set. Say, who are you? What are you doing in my flat? I said, oh, it's police, sir. We're looking for Daryl Tunningley. Have you seen him? I said, oh, no, he's a bad lad. He lives up there. You want to stay away from him? They <laughs> said, so we noticed that your door's been damaged. I said, I know I lost the keys. I had to smash the door and I went for the council to come and fix it. And they were buying it. 
They're actually buying this story and they're getting ready to leave. And as they're going out, this detective sergeant walks around the corner and goes, all right, Daryl, how are you doing? <laughs> no manner of luck. Now, where I was standing on the coffee table, there's a coffee table here and there's a knife on it. I had no intention of going for the knife, but they knew my reputation and they weren't taking any chances. So they backed off. The arm response boys came in, lots of screaming and shouting. I was face down on the floor, cuffs on. And it's the cuffs they use now with that black plastic bit in the middle. They just started using them. And I think they were still getting the hang of them. Because as they put them on and stood me up, they twisted the cuffs and it really dug into the bones of my wrist. So to relieve the pressure, I flung my head back and bust the nose of the arresting officer. That pleased them greatly, that did. Back on the floor again, more knees in my back, tie wraps on, chicken locked up, thrown in the back of the van. Cut a long story short, had some time on remand. My brief had told me to expect 10 years and up. So I thought I got myself ready for that. I changed my plea from not guilty to guilty at the last minute to avoid a trial, hopefully get a bit of clemency. I remember standing in the dock. I remember all the rigmarole that went on with the prosecution and the defense. And I remember the judge saying seven and a half years, which should have felt like a result because I thought I got myself ready for 10. But it didn't feel like a result. I remember him saying it, but I don't remember anything else. Because I was just gripping that bar and using every ounce of my strength to stop my legs buckling out underneath me. And anybody that's been in that position and tells you they felt any different is lying to you. I don't care how hard they say they were. Because all I could see was all those years just stretched out in front of me. And something snapped. Something snapped in me where I said to myself, well, that's it. Gloves are off. What have I got left to lose? If I'm going to be bad, I'm going to be the best kind of bad I can possibly be. Now, I was already nasty. I was already violent. Cause I'd figured out very early on that it had nothing to do with how big you were. It's how willing you were to go from naught to 100. If you were willing to walk up to somebody and stab them in the eye, that made you dangerous, whether you're four foot tall or eight foot tall. And that's the person I'd become. I would do the most violent thing at the drop of a hat. So when they got me back down in the holding cells at the Leeds Crown Court, I was kicking off, punching the doors, screaming, shouting. The group four boys who were running the security said, look, if you calm down and you can have a few minutes with your family. So I calmed down, they sent me through to this area. Family's on one side of this perspex screen, you're on the other. And I had to do the hardest thing I'd done in my life up to that point, which was not cry. Because they all were. And I had to let them believe that everything was going to be all right that everything was going to be fine. You see, none of my family had been to prison. We were a rough family. We were a fighting family. But the one thing, the golden rule, if you like, was you don't actually break the law. You fiddle a bit, you do some dodgy dealings, but you don't get caught. And I had. It was late by the time I got back to HMP Doncaster. And the next morning, they opened us up for breakfast. I was walking down towards the servery. Two of the inmates who were cleaners on the wing were stood by this pool table they had on D-Wing in Doncaster. And I thought one of them said something directed towards me. So I very casually walked over to them, picked up a pool ball off the table and smashed it around this kid's head. And I'm pinned on the floor, beating him. The prison officers came, dragged me off, and that one got me a few weeks in the block. Did my time in the block, came back on, put me back on the same wing because the lad had assaulted him and shipped out anyway. Now this time, morning again, breakfast, don't know what it was about breakfast, I think I was just cranky before I'd eaten, 
don't worry, I've eaten this morning. And I made it as far as the servery this time. And the prison officer standing just behind the servery, I took what he said to me to be disrespectful, and he said it in front of all the lads, so they're all waiting for me to respond. So I did respond. I dragged him over the servery, and I started beating him. Now, that one nearly landed me outside charges, so I would have got additional time on top. But it did get me shipped out. And I kept repeating this same stupid, violent behavior. So I got moved from prison to prison to prison to prison. Breaking people's jaws, assaulting people, slashing people. It was, it was getting ridiculous. And I got shipped all the way down to Leicester, which was a, it was a few hundred miles away from anybody I knew. I wasn't going to get any visits. And it was an old three-tier style prison where on the first landing you had this metal netting in case anything went over. If you're on the ground for it, it wouldn't hit you on the head. While I was there, the prison inspectors came in. They're supposed to be there for a week. After one day, they said, sort this prison out or we're shutting it down. That's how bad it was. At night time, you had to lift your shoes off the floor and put them up on your bunk because you could hear the cockroaches come out. I was on the second tier. First chance I got, I walked out. They opened us up. I walked out. There's this kid standing there. don't know who he was. I just grabbed him and threw him over the railing. He went down, hit the netting on the first floor. He was fine. Need to change his boxer shorts. But apart from that, it was all right. But it had the desired effect. And the governor's like, get him out of my prison now. And I did. But I got started up or put on category A and shipped up to HMP Wolds near Hull. But in this prison, it was different. It was quieter. I was on a, a wing with older cons who were serving longer sentences. They weren't interested in the whole pigeon chesting thing. They weren't trying to impress anybody. So I could just quietly get on with my jail. I had a reputation. I didn't need to prove anything anymore. And I got a job in the welding shop, which was a cushy number, because you got £12.50 a week. And in prison terms, that's good wages. And, but the ironic thing was, we were making the internal gates for the prison service. <laughs> you have no idea how many escape plans ran through my mind as I'm working in that welding shop. But I'm, wel I'm welding away, and I'm minding my own business. And there's this other kid in the workshop who... Normally, I would have had nothing to do with him. He was, a, he was a Muppet. He was an idiot. And he's coming around with his clipboard. And then this wasn't unusual. There's always somebody trying to get you on an anger management course or an education program or something of that ilk. And he comes around, and I'm watching him get rejected by everybody. And then he comes up to me, and he goes, do you want to go on an alpha course? I had no idea what he's talking about. I said, well, what's an alpha course? He said, oh, it's in the chapel. And as soon as he said chapel, I thought, oh, great, he's a Bible basher. I said, look, get out of my face, sunshine, before I slap you. And he did the best Speedy Gonzalez impression I've ever seen in my life. And he gone. And I thought, no more of it. Back in the workshop again the next day, minding my own business. And this kid's coming round with his clipboard again. And he was coming towards me. So I'm just stood there thinking, you cheeky beggar. I told you yesterday, and now you're going to get one. So I'm just waiting for this kid to get within slapping range. And I think he sensed that something might not be right. Because just before he got into slapping range, he blurted something out. He went, you get Wednesday afternoon out of bang up and you get free coffee and you get free biscuits. <sighs> I said, I'll see you on Wednesday, sunshine. <laughs> it was a skive. No bang up, coffee, biscuits, brilliant. I then unknowingly went and did my first ever evangelistic act. I rounded up all the lads in the workshop, said, come on, boys, we're all going alpha. So they went from having half a dozen to 30 people, armed robbers, murderers, drug dealers, you name it, on this alpha course. Now, I didn't know what to expect still, 
but I certainly was not expecting what I found. There's three people running this course, one of which was the chaplain, the vicar, which with all my stereotypes of church, that was okay, that made sense. Dog collar on, works for God, that's where they should be. That's in context, it's good. But the other two, it was two retired nuns. How old have you got to be to be a retired nun? It was less age concern and more mummy returns is where I'm going. <laughs> and again, with all my stereotypes of church, if somebody said to me, paint a picture of a fine Christian woman, these two girls ticked every one of my stereotype boxes. Sandals with socks, commando Christianity, and a slight mustache. <laughs> I later discovered not all Christian women had the optional mustache, found one who didn't have one and married a quick... So I'm just giving them an hard time. What have I come to? This is not worth hobnobs. Chocolate ones maybe, but we're not plain ones. And we just started laying into them. God doesn't exist. Even if he did, what's he ever done for me? What can you possibly tell me about life and living? You've been locked in a nunnery for 900 years. You're older than Yoda. And, and that was the tame stuff. We were abusive. But the thing that stopped me it wasn't what they said, because I wasn't really listening. But it was how they did it. Because every time they came back at me with love and compassion. And at that point in my life, I genuinely believed I would never, ever have the capacity to love or feel loved ever again. I just felt dead on the inside. All I had but was keeping me alive was hate, anger, darkness. So when they hit me with that, it was like getting slapped in the face with a wrecking ball. So I just said to myself, do you know what, Daryl, for once in your life, shut up and listen to somebody else. And when I started to listen, that's when it started to make sense. Week three of the course, the topic was, why did Jesus die? But I heard the question slightly differently. To me, the question was, why would he for a scumbag like you? What does God possibly see in you that is worth redeeming, that is worth sacrificing his own child for? And you might be sat here thinking, but I haven't done the things you did. I'm not as bad as you. I'm a good person. I've raised my kids. I've paid my taxes. You're kind of missing the point. You see, the standard that Jesus set will never move. It will never be lowered. And if anybody preaches you a gospel that lowers that standard to give you easier access, run a mile. Jesus was the only man that never, ever had a wrong thought, said a wrong word, did a wrong deed. Imagine if I had a DVD of your life. And on this DVD is everything, and I mean everything, you've ever done. Even the stuff you've only done in private. 
That includes the shower or in front of that computer screen. Everything you've ever said, even the things you've only said to yourself, is the scariest one. Everything you have ever thought is on this disc. Who'd like me to sit down and with a bit of popcorn and watch this DVD with, I don't know, let's say your grandkids or your wife or your husband or your little kiddies? You see, the truth is every single one of us falls short of that standard that will never move. The only way to heaven is because Jesus covered over everything you'd ever done, ever thought, and ever said. So that when God looks at you, he sees his son. The book of Romans says we go from being condemned to justified. It doesn't stop there. We move on to being sanctified and holy. That's the standard Jesus set. So I get to the end of the course and I'm thinking, wow. I'm not just being offered a clean slate. I'm being offered a, a whole new slate. It's going to smash it. It's going to incinerate it so there's not even a shadow of a memory in existence anymore. So I sat there in my bunk. It was Wednesday night. Nothing else to read. There was nothing on the radio. The arches had finished. And uh, I start thumbing through the Bible. As you do, don't lie, you've all done it. Inspire me. You know, you've all been there. Bad theology, don't do it, but you know what I mean. And the thing that got my attention was an Old Testament book called the book of Job. But I'd never seen it before. So if you'd never seen it before and you saw a word spelt J-O-B, what would you think it said? Exactly. I thought it's a funny place to find one. I'll have a read. And this book of Job grabbed me. The story just grabbed me. This guy, is like, he's like the Simon Cowell of the Old Testament. He's loaded. He's got everything you could ever wish for. Every model of every car. They just called them camels back then. But he had every one of them. And then in this relatively short period of time, his kids are killed. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. His friends turn against him. His wife turns against him. Everything that can go wrong, goes wrong. But through the whole process... He won't say a bad word against God. In fact, he ends the process where God gives him back everything he ever lost and more on top. And he makes this statement of, I thought I knew God, but now I truly do. I thought that's mental. You can't go through all of that and have a stronger faith in God than when you started. Nobody would stubbornly stick to anything. Maybe women. But nobody else... No one wants to stubbornly stick to it. What has he figured out that I'm missing? So I sat there on my bunk and I said the first real prayer I'd ever said in my life. And I can't repeat it word for word because I had quite a lot of swear words in it. But you know, God speaks every language, including blue. All he's looking for is a genuine plea from your heart. There is no right or wrong way to call on him. The gist of it was this, God, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you're offering me new life. But I need you to prove it in me. 
I need you to take away the hate, the violence, the addiction. And if you do that for me, I will live the rest of my life for you. And that was it. I was expecting some form of a response. I'm not being greedy. I'm not asking for a shaking cell door or a visit from an angel, but a warm fuzzy feeling would have done. Nothing. Flat as a pancake. Cheers for listening. I'm going to bed. But when I woke up the next morning, there was a series of very, very freaky events that would mark the rest of my life. Freaky event number one. Always gagging for a cigarette first thing in the morning. Rolled over, went to grab my smoke, as I always had done. I couldn't touch it. The smell of it, the look of it, the thought of it, everything about it made me want to be sick. I thought, have I picked up a stomach bug? I've eaten something dodgy. What's going on here? But I had to get rid. And I got my Rizzlers, my fresh two-ounce pouch of Golden Virginia, my Rizzlers, my wick lighter, everything out the window. Now, that's no small task. It only opens that much. As soon as it had gone, I started feeling better, but I was freaking out. And just as I started to calm down, the thought of my weed, my cannabis popped in my head. I always had enough stashed in the cell for a couple of spliffs. As soon as that thought came, the, the sickness came back with the vengeance. I was choking on my own throat, and I knew what I had to do. I went and got my little stash, and I put it out the window. Whoever was on yard cleaning duty that morning would have thought it was Christmas come early. But I was still freaking out, and I said to myself, Daryl, calm down, go get a wash, go get a shave. I go to the sink, and I start getting a wash, and I looked in the mirror, and just stopped. Because I didn't recognize my own reflection. It's like, that guy's smiling. You're not just smiling, that guy's beaming. And I noticed I didn't just look different, I felt different. Everything had gone. It was as if somebody had unscrewed the top of my head and just poured freezing cold water in, and everything had just gone. And it was at that moment they opened us up for breakfast. I stepped out on the landing. The lad next door to me, Duddy, was a bigger nutter than I was. We ran the wing together. He took one look at me. I never said a word. He just looked at me and went, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. I'm just happy. <laughs> Couldn't explain it. I thought, I've got to talk to somebody that can tell me what's going on. The only person I could think of was the chaplain. So I went straight to the PO, the principal officer on the wing. I said, look, I need an application to see the chaplain. It's the way it works inside. You want to go to the toilet, put an application in, go in three days. So... I get the application, and I write down everything that happened the night before, everything that happened that morning. The PO read it, and he rang the chaplain. <laughs> He's like, get on the wing now. He's freaking out. <laughs> so, so the chaplain comes over, and he's in his full Anglican get-up. I mean, the full regalia. And I just we stood outside the PO's office, and I just let him have it both barrels. I told him everything that had happened last night, everything that had happened that morning. And he, he paused. What, for, it was only a couple of seconds, but to me, it felt like about three hours. And then he said, the man that went to bed last night is not the same man that's standing here this morning. You're a new creation. As soon as he said those words, I started blubbing. And I'm not talking a little bit sniffly. I'm talking snot flinging, tears flying, wailing. (laughs) And when I started, he started. And the next thing you know, we're hugging. So I'm standing on the wing, bawling my eyes out, hugging a bloke in a frock. (laughs) So it got the lad's attention. The PO's just been watching this whole scenario unfold. He's like, huh? The chaplain says, I need to get him out of here to talk to him some more. The PO said, I don't care where you take him, just get him off my wing. I turn around to the lads who are having their breakfast. 
And I just said, no more. No more fighting. No more drugs. No more nothing. If you owe me anything, forget it. If you're holding anything of mine, keep it. I'm done. Jesus has saved me. Jesus didn't make me a better person. He made me a new person. People often ask me, how did I just walk away from drugs like that? I say, I didn't. Because the person you're talking about died in that cell. The person that walked out was a new creation. Now, for many of you in here today, maybe you're battling addictions. Maybe it's substance-based, alcohol, cigarettes, drugs, Maybe it's pornography. There may be a million and one things that you're battling with and you try to battle with them and the reason that you failed in your battles is because you tried to battle when you should have surrendered. The only way you can defeat it is by surrendering because the only person that can beat it is Jesus. Maybe for some of you, You've been in church for a long time, but somewhere along the line, you forgot your first love and became religious. Somewhere along the line, Jesus stopped becoming the last thought on your mind when you fell asleep and the first thought on your mind when you woke. Somewhere along the line, other things became more important in your life than him. Now is the time to come back home. I don't know where you're up to and I'm not going to go down the route of asking the Holy Spirit to prophetically point people out because I don't, I don't feel that's fair but you know who you are because right now the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on you right now and you're feeling that conviction not in a condemning way but in a loving way a voice that's calling you home just like the prodigal son you're having that realization moment of, I need to lay these things down and I need to turn to God. And if that is you, in these last few minutes, I would love the immense privilege of praying with you. If you've been battling with sickness, illness or injury, I know God can heal you. I've seen with my own eyes God opening deaf ears. I've seen with my own eyes cataracts disappearing. I've seen with my own eyes an elderly gentleman lifting his walking frame above his head and doing laps of the flipping auditorium. But I don't believe because I've seen. I just believe. Don't leave this place the same way you came in. There's a beautiful tradition from the time of the temple in Jerusalem. When people would go to prayer, they would never leave by the same door they entered. So they would never leave the same way they came in. Now is your time. Now is your opportunity 
to walk out of this place, not with the shackles loosened, but the chains broken. Do you believe it? 